Chacha Pinks. You are listening to Behind the Lens. And yes, you are listening to Behind the Lens. Welcome back for another week. I'm Debbie Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens. You can find my reviews and movie reviews and interviews in over 140 places, printing online around the globe. But every week, you can find me right here on Adrenaline Radio at 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern Time, along with my trusty sidekick and cohort in the engineering booth, Brian. Hello, Brian. Good morning. And how are you today? I am doing fantastic. Well, good. I, I took, it was a good weekend. It was. It was a great, great week of football, great week of movies. Disney, we we found out what the Rogue One Nissan vehicle looks like. Yes, yes, and, and I guess we'll talk about that during the Star Wars countdown, but that was fun, and uh, we're close to the movie. Yes, it's we here. are. It's we'll, basically here. We'll do that in a, in a minute. But, you know, for everyone, and I noticed we start, actually started a couple seconds early today. You know what? I, I saw the look on your face, <laughs> and I was like, that clock right there? That is, uh, it's hooked up to the internet. Uh huh. So every once in a while, I'll set the clocks, and then I'll like right here. I can tell you what time do you let's. What time do you have on yours? Uh, Count me down to the second. Oh one forty. Okay, I'm at one fifty, so I'm ten seconds ahead. So I I started on time. My clock, which is the one that that I'm running off. Of. Uh huh. But you, see, that one is an internet clock, so it goes to the internet time and set. So when I fix the clocks. So what, what I'm saying is, when you told me earlier that I fixed the clocks, I said yes, but then they fixed themselves again. Mm-hmm. So you have every right to yell at me right now. Go a likely it. story. A likely story. That's what happened. But, you know, talking about stories, we've got a great story in a film we're going to talk about today called The House on Pine Street. It is a supernatural thriller, and we have cast and... Writers and writers, directors with us today. We've got uh, co writers, co directors Aaron Keeling and Austin Keeling, and co writer Natalie Jones. They're going to be joining us at the quarter hour mark. And at the half hour mark, we have two of the film's stars, Emily Ghost and Natalie Pellegrini. And we're going to get both sides here as to being in front of the camera and behind the camera, all in the same show for a change. And it's it's an amazing film. If there are some a few scenes in there that really they all, they made me jump. Very well done. Emily does an amazing job. Very physical role for the things that happen within the film. But I'm more curious because I heard a rumor that not only it did some of the crew and some of the filmmakers grow up in a purported haunted house, but. The house they shot the film in is also allegedly haunted. So it's going to be fun to get the real scoop on what's going on with that. But are we are we ready for your favorite part of the show, Brian? Okay, well then, why don't we are ready or should we go to a break? Uh, yeah, let, let's hit the commercial break and then when we get back, we'll regroup Because I am off my game here. He's off his game. Okay. Well, then we're going to take a short break. Take a listen, and you can find out how to contribute to the Indiegogo campaign for Crazy Bitches 2, Mommy's Behaving Badly. We'll be right back. It's time to get crazy with Crazy Bitches 2. That's right. The team behind Crazy Bitches is back and needs your help to bring Crazy Bitches 2 to life. You can back the film and do your holiday shopping at the same time thanks to fun swag and exciting opportunities that will ship just in time to put under or on your tree. Christmas ornaments turn deadly when mommies behave badly and someone can't take it anymore. So go crazy. Join the Crazy Bee Nation and go to the Indiegogo campaign at igg.me backslash at backslash crazy bs2 crazy b nation crazy bitches too see i told you we'd be right back and we are again welcome back to behind the lens i am debbie elias and with me is my trusty engineer brian are we all set in there for your favorite part of the show, Brian? We are set for sure. And uh, I should give you a proper introduction. You should. That's what I've been doing all weekend. But 
We are ready. It is time for the Star Wars countdown. If my father built this thing, we need to find him. All right. How many do I need? I see. They are requesting a call sign. It's um Rogue. Rogue One. Oh, that's huh. all. That's all I wanted to hear. <laughs> And maybe a little bit of Darth Vader breathing. But yes, there was a and new trailer today. That was a surprise. I, I did not know that was coming. Yeah, that was from EPK.TV. Yes. If you're not in the know, then you don't know. But now you know. Okay. Go ahead. Okay. All right. So Star Wars. We used to do this one backwards, but now we're looking at Rogue One since it's so close. I don't look at this until Debbie gets into the studio and she asks me to do the segment. So we are 24 days away, 12 hours, 53 minutes to go until the drop of this of rogue one and again my only complaint is where are the pre-sale tickets well you know and in honor of the countdown i now have an ample supply of rogue one t-shirts one of which i'm wearing today yes you are you're uh if i'm looking correctly you have one of the new shock troopers yes i do as well as the classic uh stormtroopers and yes. uh, i think i don't I can't see who's on the left hand side there no, you're. We my, have the Death Star. What? Well, no, there's, there's like a, uh, he looks a little bit different from the, from the original. Yeah. Well, well, we're gonna find out when the film debuts, aren't we? Uh, and you know what's cool is, is it's fun to go back to it because we had a, a new, unique look of the stormtroopers with the new film, mm-hmm. but now we're going back to what? The retro. To the retro, and it's fun to watch this new retro now now it's going to be like okay now these stormtroopers are going to look brand new because they are brand new right they are they're supposed to be the the galactic empire they're supposed Mm -hmm. to be like this big funded company instead of like the rebels or before the rebels obviously well the the rebels are here but but that's that's the interesting part because we've already seen from a new hope on we've seen everything propel forward and now we are going back to the genesis and to see what the imagineers uh, are coming up with for this film that will take us back, you know, to a time ta- to just before we all fell in love with the with the Star Wars universe. Uh, I'm really curious to see everything that is unveiled with Rogue One. And what day again is that opening? That is opening on December 16th. Uh, obviously, December 14, uh, 15th will be Thursday night screening, so it all it opens up on Thursday, but. Uh, mm-hmm. it'll, it'll be here on Friday. Like It'll be full-fledged Star Wars Mania again on the 16th. Yes, of next it week. will be. And if you're uh, so inclined to wait outside the movie theater after Rogue One is over, then you'll be only waiting a mere 388 days for Star Wars Episode Eight, And that one continues the Rey and the Finn uh, storyline with Poe Dameron and, and what's going on with Kylo Ren. So yes. I know some, I see, I, I, I see the confusion online every, every once in a while about where this, this uh, Rogue One story takes place. And I have to jump in there immediately as, as a white knight and save everybody from the confusion <laughs> that they're all in. But so Rogue One will continue the story. We'll, we'll start the story. So Rogue One will be like the first movie. If you want to put it in chronological order, True. it'll be the first Star Wars story told as of right now through film. There's obviously story uh, books and, and cartoons that go a little bit further than that. But Rogue One will be number uno, which they won't name it. That's why it's called A Star Wars Story. That's true. It'll be it'll be canon to the story, but it'll be the first one. And then Star Wars Episode Eight obviously comes after Episode Seven. Yes. So those are in chronological order, but Rogue One is a separate story, but it goes before all of the other, other films. And I, like you, cannot wait. No, I, I can't. I, I really – and it's getting more exciting because you're seeing the commercials. You're seeing the, the posters pop up. Anything, yes. It's just – if there's one thing in this crazy, crazy world that we live in at the moment, if there's one thing that will bring everybody together, it's pizza and Star Wars. And popcorn. And popcorn. And, and – okay. In the Jumbo tub, Rogue One tub. Yes. Yes. I've seen those with the cups. See? Yes. I, okay. I, I went to go watch a movie over the weekend and I saw all the Star oh, – the Rogue One cutouts and everything. And, you know, speaking of movies, this is Thanksgiving weekend coming up. And there are lots of new movies opening this weekend. A lot of new movies. One interesting, I like I like the holiday weekend like this because movies open up on Wednesday instead right. of Friday. But what's interesting, there are some that are actually opening on Friday as well. Miss Sloan, starring Jessica Chastain, directed by John Madden, is opening on Friday. And a really fantastic documentary. Uh, call, uh, 
called Mifuni, The Last Samurai, a documentary from Steve Okazaki on Toshiro Mifuni, one of the icon, the most iconic actor to come out of Japanese cinema, Kurosawa's longtime collaborating partner and actor. Uh, most of you probably recognize Mifuni from The Magnificent Seven, or Seven Samurai, rather. Uh, it's an extremely detailed and chronological look at Japanese cinema going back to silent film. So some of the archival stuff in there is not to be believed. But on Wednesday, Wednesday we have some gems that are opening. We'll start with the family-friendly one, Moana. This is, this is causing a stir and a buzz in the industry and uh, around around the, the country because we have a Polynesian princess. The film was worked on by, you know, artisans from the South Pacific Islands. Dwayne Johnson, himself a Polynesian background. The film star. And God, if I screw her name up, I'll kill myself. Aluihi Kravahalo. Uh, she voices the female protagonist, Moana. Um, she is a 15-year-old native Hawaiian. And I recently attended the press conference that had Dwayne, that had Ahili. Um, the directors, Ron Clements, John Musker, uh, along with this guy you might have heard of, Lin-Manuel Miranda, who actually wrote many of the songs in the film. Uh, along with the producer and a couple more people. But I had a chance to ask, and it is visually, it's a stunner. It is a stunning, stunning film. Once again, Disney dazzles with their visuals with Moana, really celebrating the aquas, the blues, the textures. Kudos to the cinematography and the lighting because they actually pull out the polarity and pull back on the reflection to allow the true colors of the blues and the greens to come through of the water and make it a character unto itself. And in that vein, I asked Ron and John about the technological advances since their last water adventure, The Little Mermaid. Well, first of all, congratulations to all of you. The film is very, very, pardon the expression, shiny. (laughs) It's a beautiful job. John and Ron, I'm so glad that the sea called you back again. (laughs) We did get called back. Yeah, the sea was beckoning us, and we we responded. And with that in mind, I'd like to ask you, since your visit with The Little Mermaid under the sea, what has happened with technology that allowed you to now make the water an actual three-dimensional character within the film. Well, well, someone asked us, um, could you have done that when you did The Little Mermaid? And the answer was, well, no, obviously. But um, actually, even five years ago, I think it would have been much harder to do it. It, It's The technology just keeps developing all the time. And and we knew pretty early on, um, when we were in the islands, people talked about the ocean as if it were alive. And and, and they caressed it, and they had this, these personal relationships with the ocean. So we knew we wanted the ocean to be a character in the movie. We knew we wanted to have this, this lava monster in the movie. Uh, we didn't know how to do it. Um, and we talked to a, a lot of very smart people in terms of, and they didn't know how to do it either. They were saying that this is, like, going to be really, really hard, but we think we can figure it out before the movie needs to come out. And, and they did. Um, so it was actually, there was sort of groundbreaking technology in this movie. There are a lot of things in this movie, even including what was done with the hair, Maui's hair, Moana's hair. There, there are things that um, were really breakthroughs in technology. And hand in hand with the beauty from all of the technology and the visuals and the animation is the music. As I said, Lin-Manuel Miranda, some spectacular stuff. Two songs in particular I think you will totally enjoy. You're Welcome, which you get to hear Dwayne Johnson sing in this film. And at the end titles, uh, you have a rap version from Lin-Manuel Miranda. And there's another song called Shiny uh, about one of the stars of the film, an undersea oversized crab, voiced by Jermaine Clement, uh, who likes to adorn his shell with shiny things. Uh, both of those are real standouts to parents get ready. Um, I think your kids are going to be singing a lot of shiny and you're welcome. Uh, but it is, it's fun, it's exciting, it's a seafaring adventure in many respects. 
and it's about embracing and finding who you are. It's uh, the script by J- uh, Jared Bush, very well done. Uh, so I can't recommend it enough. It is perfect for families this holiday weekend. But right now, we have on the phone another holiday movie. We'll get to at the end of the show, Bad Santa 2, which is my favorite. But we're going to right now, we have with us the fabulous, we have Aaron Keeling and Natalie Jones with us. We also have uh, Austin Keeling. There's three of us on the line. Oh, my God. You're all there together. We're all here. (laughs) Woohoo! How fabulous. Hi, guys. Hi. Welcome. Well, Thank you so much. this is um, the house on Pine Street. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. <laughs> is that a good oh, my God? It is a very good oh, my God. I totally, thoroughly enjoyed this film. And what you put poor Emily Goss through, how could you? How could you? Oh, I'm glad you liked it, though. I mean, it is, you're on the edge of the seat as this store, as this supernatural ghost story is unfolding. You've got real scares in there. But the first thing I got to find out from you, because your lovely publicist, Tim, told me, yeah. he goes, you know, some of them grew up in a house that was haunted, and the house they shot in was haunted. I'm like, oh, well, that's really cool. So now I have to ask, how how many of the effects are effects, and how many were actual hauntings? Well, unfortunately, all the effects were just effects. But uh, <laughs> fortunately, I'm like, no, that's, that's fortunate. Yeah, well, I think ha- real haunting stuff would have been cool, too. It would have been cool, but I would have run out of the house. <laughs> out of there so fast. Yeah, but no, Aaron and I... Aaron and I, we grew up in a, uh, in Leavenworth where we shot half of the film in a house that was like 180 years old. And we lived there till we were 10 and we were pretty sure the house was haunted. Um, we never had any apparitions, you know, like picking us up or throwing us around like happens in the movie. But there were some definitely unexplainable things that were really creepy. And that was definitely an inspiration when we were kind of writing this. Um, then Natalie found the house on Craigslist, actually, the house that we shot in. Um, <laughs> yeah. And uh, it actually was a pretty creepy house. It was 140, 100, 160 years old, I think. Uh, and Natalie, Natalie experienced a few, a few things. Do you want to talk about? Well, it was mainly our sound guy. I think he was one who actually experienced it. Uh-huh. There were a couple times that he would say that he heard kids, and we had no kids on set when he said that. And then also there was a time when we were filming the scene in the basement where Emily and Natalie are in the basement doing the candle scene. Mm-hmm. And we, he looked at me and he said, hey, could you ask them to go stop talking upstairs because I'm picking up on the mic. So I went upstairs and only the actor Taylor Bottles was upstairs and he was reading a book. And I was like, please tell me you were just talking out loud or something. <laughs> and so we went and waited outside because <laughs> it was spooky for us. Oh, my gosh. So, you know, it's one thing to grow up in a house that you're sure is haunted. It's another to then turn that into your livelihood and make a movie. So how did you go about approaching telling the story of the house on Pine Street and where you came up with the idea for this? Yeah, well, since... Since Austin and I have, you know, we grew up in a haunted house, we've always been really fascinated with that. And then um, when we met up with Natalie and we decided we were going to make a movie, it was never a question that our first film was going to be about a haunted house. But we were kind of sitting around thinking, you know, how are we going to do this? What are we going to, you know, how are we going to make it a little bit special? And we thought, what are the two things that scare us the most? And the first was ghosts and the second was babies. Um, So we decided to put a pregnant woman in a haunted house and see what happened. Um, and that's actually as simple as it was. We were just sitting around and we just said, let's do this. And it just kind of came naturally out of that. Yeah, but I think one of the big things, because uh, for us, um, growing up in a house that we thought was haunted, we never, you know, called a professional to come take a look. And we had neighbors who, who told us rumors and, you know, weird stories about things that had happened there. But we never found out if there actually was something going on. And I think that was something we looked at. We looked at haunted house movies, and there's always a very clear-cut answer that is easy to solve. And for us, 
living in a house that we thought was haunted, there was no answer, and it was much more ambiguous than a lot of times what movies, what movies portray. So that's kind of something that we wanted to keep in mind and try to, to do with this movie, make something that was a little more real to life in terms of what a haunting might be. So what is it about babies? I, I, I get the ghost part. What is it about babies that scares you guys? <laughs> Uh, babies are terrifying. Uh, I don't know. All three of us are just kind of horrified by the thought of having kids. And I don't know, there's something about pregnancy, too, that's like, it's like a little parasite in you. I don't know. I mean, it's also a beautiful thing, but it's, <laughs> but it's also kind of just creepy to us. So, no, no, kids are great. Kids are great. I think we, none of us are ready to have kids yet, so it's just still a very scary idea <laughs> well is, are babies scarier than actually making a feature film oh no well maybe <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. we're done with the feature film but uh we would still have babies with them. that's that's <laughs> true that that's true so one so you two you always knew you'd be directing this correct Yes, yeah when we when we wrote it we knew the three of us would produce it and aaron and i would be directing from the very beginning yeah but of course, Natalie is also she's ading. Yeah, we it was a very small crew, and we we all kind of wore multiple hats. And I mean, that was one of the things we were like, we're going to make a movie, and we set a date, and we we had the script, and we were like, you know, we're just going to do it. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so we 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 kind of ended up, you know, like we were like, who's going to ad this? <laughs> and Natalie was like, I'll do it. So. <laughs> Yeah, it was a really fun time because we all actually, a lot of the crew and cast lived in the house mm-hmm. that we were shooting in. And so we set one room aside that we weren't filming in and we had bean bags and mattress pads and bunk beds. And it was just like a big cuddle puddle kind of. And it was a really interesting shoot. It was a lot of fun. Well, and of course, I also understand you had no shower in the house. Yeah, I guess just because the house was so old, there were two bathrooms, but only one of them had just a bathtub so we kind of had to make our own shower which i don't think that we were prepared to do that we thought we were and we we made it happen then a few days into the shoot it started leaking into the floor below it so you know never make your own shower i guess yeah get a real oh my goodness so once you find this great house natalie and you've got your script and you're ready to shoot because this is, it's a ghost story, supernatural, and there's stuff that's happening in the real world, how do you go about designing the production? And are you shot listing? You know, what, because you use accoutrements that are in a house with a lot of these effects that you're doing and a lot of, of the haunting with lamps and cribs and furniture and things. So you've got to find all of that and not worry about it getting broken. Yeah, we got really lucky in the sense when we found the house on Craigslist, we had kind of hit like a stopping point in the script, but then we found this house on Craigslist and it was amazing. We were able to kind of cater the script to the house specifically. Mm. And the guy that owned the house, his name is Frank, he's amazing. He let us use a lot of stuff that he had, but there were also just like a lot of people that let us borrow a bunch of set pieces and that we had to try not to break. Yeah, the breaking thing <laughs> definitely the scariest but it was it was um we had a stunt coordinator come in from st louis actually and uh he he was really experienced so like uh, you know some of the more kind of effect heavy scenes he, he we really mapped out we had some shot listed and we we did a lot of rehearsals and um but yeah we were lucky frank the owner of the house he let us paint the walls he let us drill holes in the walls for the wire uh sequences and stuff like that mm-hmm. um he actually there's a scene where a window breaks he came to the house with a ladder and actually like use the ladder to ram into the window and break it himself. He was like, I want to do this. So he was a really cool guy. <laughs> we got really lucky with that house. Wow. And I, I, that's one thing I was going to ask because color is, it's important at first blush at, at house on Pine street. I don't think people are going to realize how important color is, mm. but with, with what the paint colors that you've chosen, especially in the baby's room and then with the different lighting that you use, we really get a sense of, you know, changes within the within the haunting tone uh, mm-hmm. of the room, and I thought that was really a nice touch and attention to detail on your parts. Yeah, our production designer Monique Thomas, she came in with this idea and she pitched it to us of this color scheme 
and sort of she chose a color for the house and for Kansas, kind of, the mm-hmm. idea of this one color to represent that and then another color to represent Jennifer. And just the way she played it out in the costuming and in the pink choices and, and some of even the props. Um, and just the way that those two colors started diametrically opposed to each other then sort of combined. I was amazed she came with that idea, and it, it turned out so nicely. It, it is very subtle, but people who pick up on it, it, it I think it adds a lot to the, the finished film. I mean, I really, because that really helps intensify what Emily's character, you know, is of Jennifer is going through. And it allows you, through your camera work, through your editing, Austin, great job with the editing, because you, you. you really help create a sense of ambiguity. And we are wondering throughout the film, is she going crazy? Or is something really happening? And a lot of that is thanks to some great performances also from Taylor Bottles and mm-hmm. from Kathy Barnett. Yeah, we got really, really lucky with all of our actors. Um, we were just blown away by the talent that we found. Uh, both Natalie Pellegrini and um, Emily, we met in Los Angeles, um, and so they flew out from there. But everyone else was local to Kansas City, um, and yeah, we just were blown away by everyone that we that we found for the film. We're so happy. So, what do people? What did, would people say to you when you gave them the script to read? Were they anxious to do a story in a house that is purportedly haunted? <laughs> well, or, or did you leave that part out? Yeah, well, uh, we we didn't really tell them that it was, you know, we, we told them it was an old house, but uh, we had spent, I think, about two weeks there before anyone else came, and um, we, we, we assured them that we hadn't experienced any ghosts, you know, any full-body apparitions or anything. So, But no, Natalie Pellegrini is terrified of horror movies, so when she flew in, like every creak and every flickering light, she was like, it's a ghost. So. And you put her in a dark basement. Yeah, we actually we actually ended up shooting that scene during the day and just <laughs> did it day for night because she felt more comfortable <laughs> being in the basement during the day. Well, that was very accommodating of you. <laughs> I can't believe she agreed to do it. Well, look, I'm painting this picture that like Natalie was terrified, but in in all honesty, me, Austin, and Natalie Jones were terrified of absolutely everything. I mean. We any house we walk into, even if it was built yesterday, we're like, this house is haunted. Like you hear a noise, we're like, it's a ghost. It's definitely a ghost. So I don't know how we survived during the shoot. To yeah. be honest, now I am now your camera operator, your cinematographer, Juan Sebastian Barron. Guy, yeah, your the the angles that you guys designed with him, your camera angles are amazing. You go from from corners in corners in rooms to floor to ceiling. Your dutching is outstanding, but the way you make use of the whole haunting spectral idea of a camera being up high and then shooting down two stories—absolutely stunning. How, Thank you. Yeah. How did you de- go about developing that those cam that the camera style that you chose? Um, yeah, we, we we went through with Sebastian through the whole script, and we kind of walked through every room. Um, and we had a shot list, um, but we didn't storyboard. We kind of just wrote up a shot list mm-hmm. and just walked through every location. And we, that was why we were so lucky that we had, you know, we were living in the location that we had all this time. But the high camera angles, especially, that was something Austin came up with early on. We were talking about the idea of um, disassociation, mm-hmm. um, like, from your body. And so we were kind of talking about that in terms of the spirit and the ghosts in the house um, being this kind of idea of being removed from your body and watching yourself. Mm-hmm. And we kind of loved that idea. So we tried to fit a lot of those shots into the film. Yeah, I mean, a wonderful metaphor that ca- you carry it through consistently. I mean, once we hit... Your setup is great, but once we hit that 49-minute mark, you guys just explode as filmmakers. You just explode. I mean, it's fabulous. Absolutely fabulous. Thank you. Thank you so much. Well, you know, I I see that I have other lines blinking here with two of your stars. Would you like to stay on the line with them? Sure. Okay, Brian, can you bring them both on? Oh, he's doing something. So we'll keep talking while he's figuring out what he's doing with it, with all the sound <laughs> and the and the lines. I've got to ask you your your score. Mm-hmm. You didn't use canned music. This is very specific 
tailored yeah. to, to, you know, tailored to your story. You know, how did you go about finding Nathan and Jeremy to come up, to come up with your score? Well, actually, that was a really fortuitous thing. I had I had known them. Uh, Aaron and I had known them from um, USC, but I'd never worked with them before. And we actually had a different composer signed on to the film from the beginning. And we had to uh, some things came up, and he had to drop out. And we had two weeks until our premiere date to get this score. And we, we just we contacted Nathan and Jeremy. They loved the film, and they worked for two weeks, day and night and churned out this original score that is amazing. We were so blown away. And they did it in two weeks, which is crazy. I mean, it's... Were there any notes that you gave them as to things that you were looking for? Well, yeah, and it was... They were uh, very um, collaborative. And so we we gave them notes. We sent them some... I I had put in uh, in the edit some temp music, so I sent them my temp cues Mm -hmm. to kind of give them an idea of what we were looking at. Uh, but then we we spent a lot of time on the phone. I actually got the chance to go and meet up with them in Los Angeles and go over each cue one by one to to know. But it was just this idea of, of unease, kind of a, a slowly building dread and something that even if it wasn't on the nose, it wasn't something that was like at the forefront of the scene, something to keep the, the feeling off kilter and kind of uncomfortable throughout mm-hmm. was the, uh, the main direction there. No, I, lo- I love the score to this. It, I, it's, it's very, it has an individual style, and I really like that it stands out, and it doesn't sound canned like so many supernatural and horror films do. Mm-hmm. Beautiful job. And now, I think there are two people who have joined us that you may know. Emily Goss, are you there? Yes, hello, Emily Goss. Natalie Pellegrini, are you there? I am. Hi, everyone. Hey guys, your your writers and directors and producers are on here with you, girls. Oh, that's wonderful! How fun! I've been I've been secretly listening to I think for the past minute and a half or so. (laughs) (laughs) About how amazing our film score is, unbelievable. Well, there are a lot of amazing things about this film, and both of your performances are right there. But I got to ask Emily first. You know, how much torment did your body go through with this film? <laughs> it was very physical. I would not describe it as torment. Um, but it, it was it was very physically demanding. Um, in particular, there is a certain sequence that, you know, we, for which we had a stunt coordinator. and And that was grueling, but... I grew up playing soccer. I started out doing theater. I love to use my body when I work. Mm-hmm. Well, you certainly got to do that here. <laughs> yes. And you got it to be pregnant. Delight. I'm sorry? And you got to be pregnant. I did. I did. You know, when you got the script for House on Pine Street, what was your first reaction? I loved it. It was so thought-provoking. Jennifer, in particular, really struck me. I'd never encountered a heroine like her before because she's not much of a heroine. She she is not likable in the traditional Hollywood sense, and mm-hmm. she doesn't care. She fights for what she believes in, and she wants what she wants, and she doesn't apologize for it ever. So as soon as I started reading the script and got to know her, I, I was instantly hooked. Yeah, and what about for you, Natalie, especially since I understand you, you don't like ghosts in horror movies? Oh, that's been discussed already. Yes. <laughs> um, I kind of had a similar reaction to Emily about Lauren because I always want to strive to play strong female characters and uh, people that I strive to be more like. And Lauren is a fierce friend and a fierce mother. Um, Mm -hmm. And it was just, I read it and I was like, I like her and I can't wait to be as good as her. Oh, yeah. 
so I, I fell in love with the whole thing. It was just chilling. It isn't was it? It's wonderful to read. Oh, yeah. Thank you. It really is. So let me ask Aaron Austin and Natalie, what made Emily and Natalie the right actors for these two women? Yeah, we uh, casting was a difficult process, and we saw we we kind of originally thought we were going to try to find just local actors, even for um, the parts of Lauren and Jennifer. And we saw, I think, close to three hundred actors in Casey, and 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 all of them were extremely talented. But we kind of weren't getting. I don't know. The, it, it's kind of something that is hard to to talk about because it's kind of it's you only you just know it when you see it, you know. And it's like we 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 had some good options, but. We uh, knew Emily and we and we knew Natalie and we were like, let's just you know see if they want to do a video audition. And it was kind of the same thing happened with both of them. Where when we saw their video auditions, we're like, there it is. So I think for me with Emily, the the her willingness to accept both the good characteristics about Jennifer, but also some of the less flattering characteristics mm-hmm. about Jennifer, and how she was not questioning. Of you know she she wanted to throw herself fully into this complete person and I think that was really impressive and something we didn't see with a lot of people and Natalie just has this warmth and humor to her that I think is very important with with Lauren and we we just knew right away when we saw that it's like this is the character this is who we need to bring this role to life and and I think she really I think Lauren's character Natalie's performance really adds a nice fresh like a breath you know of like relief from the the tension yeah natalie you do bring a lightness we get to breathe for a moment and laugh Mm -hmm. when you're on screen but you also in in your performance and i don't know if aaron and austin intended this but where we have poor jennifer alone in the basement gone down to shut the door after you've abandoned her and gone up to the living room and you're sitting there with with her husband Luke there's also these moments the way it's shot from from Jennifer's POV and your body language and performance with Taylor that you also create some ambiguity as to gee is something going on with Lauren and Luke that might be you know driving that wedge between Jennifer and Luke I I think that was an accident. <laughs> it plays I, really well. I think Taylor is just such a wonderful person that in character it's hard not to be drawn to him that way and have a naturally good time when you're trying to get out of this dark situation with with Jennifer. Um and I actually didn't realize we did that until I watched the movie and I was like, "Oh, there might be something happening there." Mhm. So it was I it was totally unintentional on my part. I don't know about with Austin and Aaron if they did that behind my back, but Yeah, you know, it was, like, it was something that like we we definitely um I don't think we realized how big of a part it was going to play until we were on set doing it. We had discussed it and we we set up those situations um purposefully, but we kind of thought it would be a little, you know, more subtle, but we liked the way that it turned out, mm-hmm. just the natural chemistry between Taylor and Natalie. It, it works really well, especially in that moment, because it's this moment where the two people closest to Jennifer are suddenly not on her side, right. and not on her mm-hmm. team. And like, it's this really powerful moment where Jennifer kind of realizes I'm alone in this. And um, mm-hmm. yeah, I think it's one of the most kind of emotionally affecting moments of the film. It, it truly is. But then again, there again, it's kudos to you guys and to Austin's editing throughout the whole film, raising mm-hmm. the, all these situations of ambiguity that keep the audience wondering what's really going on with Jennifer. And then, Emily, you play that so well with such emotional conviction. Thank you. Is it is it difficult to get yourself into those moments of frenzy where, hmm. you, where you think you're spiraling out of control? Um, gosh. I, I wouldn't I wouldn't say it was particularly difficult. Our environment on set was so supportive and so professional and the order in which we shot the film, we shot essentially in chronological order, really helped build that so I could feel the natural progression of desperation mm-hmm. as Jennifer does. And I'm I'm so thankful for, for the crew and the rest of the cast. Because as we see you, you know, essentially almost descending into madness at moments. Mm-hmm, definitely. It is, you know, it's very powerful. You really convey that. 
Thank you. And I, I know that's not an easy place for actors to get to go to quickly. It does. Well, thank you. I mean, I, you know, it's so funny. I think it depends on the actor. Since House on Pine Street, I have played a few women who have been battling with sanity. So maybe <laughs> that's my niche. Uh oh. <laughs> uh oh. D- did you guys know that you were typecasting her with this role? <laughs> but you know, of course, Natalie. Though, come on, how many people get to be a victim in Sharknado? Oh, that's a thing I did too. <laughs> oh my god! That was a wonderful thing that I owe mostly to a roommate uh, who was just nice enough to have me be an extra, and I told somebody I wanted to die um, <laughs> on the set. On the set. Um, and that's how that happened. <laughs> you know, you guys really hired two very eclectic women here. Do you realize that? <laughs> we were a very eclectic group, all of us. We're, yeah, it was a lot of fun being all of us together on set. Well, you know, in that vein, what is it about filmmaking that speaks to each of you? What is it that drives you forward, be it as a director, as a writer, as an actor? And Natalie, I know you've also done some writing as well. So I'm just curious, what is it about filmmaking on the whole for each of you? Who wants to start? I think you you spoke first. Natalie, wait a minute. Natalie Jones has been very quiet. I think Natalie Jones needs to talk. (laughs) Go, Natalie, go. Um, Well, I think there's just something that's so fun about the storytelling aspect. And I don't know, especially with horror, horror seems to be the three of us. That's kind of where we're going to stick for a while. The level of fantasy that people will just watch and agree with no matter what you do, or you can't really do that with other genres without them really critiquing it. And there's something just really fun about the the fantasy level and the make-believe that you get to do with horror specifically. Yeah, it's like heightened realism. It's like this. it exists in this mm. world, the horror I'm talking about specifically, where it's like, yeah, it's like it, you're you're playing it as if it's this real thing, but there's this just this element of it that's just like so out of place. And and yeah, like you said, Natalie, you just like kind of roll with it. And it's like I I I personally, that's what my sweet spot is is this kind of like this kind of alternate reality and the fact that you can go in and create the story that's grounded in such a real place and has such real emotions, but is heightened by this, you know, very over-the-top supernatural kind of aspect, and you create this world that's so different than the world we live in, and I think that's so exciting that you can, you have that possibility and that opportunity with film. Mm-hmm. And what about the rest of you? <laughs> um, for me, I love the journey. I love all types of exploration, whether it's literally traveling to somewhere else like Kansas and getting to experience what life is like over there or whether it's the emotional journey that you go on with a group of people with whom you're working closely for a period of time. I I love the collaborative aspect of storytelling and filmmaking especially. Being there all together in the moment, working so hard creating a spark of magic and then moving on. Mm-hmm. I love that. And I got two more of you to hear from. Is it me? Okay, I'll go. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I'm a huge fan of uh, fantasy and science fiction, which has that same kind of element of this is the world we live in, but something is different, uh, similar to horror, but less terrifying. And mm-hmm. um, for me, I love being in a different world and as an actor, being able to be the person I would like to be in everyday life, like maybe a little more confident or outspoken or won't let certain things happen, you know, be, be the hero or the anti-hero um, and play around with who you are in that situation. And also just building a world that, is so unique in so many ways. And like Emily said, just seeing people come together who I didn't know a lot of the people on House on Pine Street before they showed up in Kansas. And then at the end of it, you made this family and this experience that is just irreplaceable every time you make a film. Mm. And it's 
it's such a unique feeling as an artist and as a human to be able to do that. And last but not least. Yeah, for me, especially <laughs> as a, a director and an editor, filmmaking really kind of fulfills both of my very separate needs as a human being of uh, mm-hmm. being around a group of people and being part of a team and then being alone. Uh, <laughs> I love getting to have both sides of that. And I think it's so interesting, especially in the editing room, to be just one person, maybe two, working with these chunks of something that exists and then thinking back to, oh, that shot, which I'm just dealing with now, there were 20 people there, you know, who made this happen. And I think that 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 is really, really just like something that, that fulfills a deep part of me to be able to, to be on set with all of these people and create something and just be kind of like frantic, like we got to get this done and then come to it later and, and have it there and just remembering, you know, wow, a lot of work went into this, but <laughs> I, I don't know. I think I think for me, I, I think more as an editor when I'm directing too, and and so there's something about the storytelling aspect of editing and just finding the film in the editing room that's really really important to me. Because you're working with what I like to call low budget, no budget films. Do you, <laughs> do you find it helps you, Austin, because you are an editor, to save some time on your shot setups and your shot selections because you have an idea where you're already going to be going in the editing bay. Oh yeah, definitely. I, I there were a lot of times on set where where we were running out of time, and Aaron and Natalie and I would get together and be like, and I would just let them know, you know, like we need these shots, but we can lose these because the edit will work without them, mm-hmm. and that really did save it. And I think that's the thing. I've been on a lot of sets where where there isn't an uh, an editor present, someone who's not thinking of it with an editor's mind, and a lot of times they lose when you're losing time. They end up cutting shots that turn out to be kind of necessary for making it work. So I, I think it's really helpful to be on set with an editing mind and just know what is exactly necessary, what is the very minimum needed, especially on, on sets like this where time is everything and there's really not a lot of money involved. So mm. I definitely think that helps. Now, you've all also, you've done shorts. You know, Emily, I know you've done TV as well. What's mm-hmm. the, what is the learning curve like for each of you, jumping from shorts to a feature or going back and forth from a feature film to television? Um, okay, I'll, I'll jump us off. Um, independent filmmaking is the absolute best training an artist could ever receive, I think, because the all of the odds are against you and... You have no time. You have no resources. Maybe you're freezing or you're soaking wet or your body hurts, but you don't have, there are, you, you don't have any excuses. You have to deliver. And so after doing a lot of independent film, when I started doing network television and everyone tells actors like, oh, don't expect to get more than two takes. Coming from independent film, I'm like, oh, two takes. Oh, that's great. Um, so, so I just I love independent film, and I'm very thankful for all my experiences. Okay, well, wait a minute. If, if you know, if you get told for network television, you don't get more than two takes. How many takes did uh, Aaron and Austin let you have? I mean, I feel like we had all the time that we needed. There, there are some shots of the film that we only got once because they were very complicated. Sure. And very long, um, but I think that Aaron Austin and Natalie ran a very beautiful set, and we had time to play. Mm-hmm. And what about? But what, Natalie kept us in line. <laughs> <laughs> now, what, what what about for the rest of you? You know, with the jumps from TV and shorts to a feature film, you know. I will the, say that this feature, the three of us, I don't think to think about how hard or grueling it was going to be until after the fact. We shot for 19 straight days with no breaks, and at the time when we scheduled that, we didn't think about it. We were just like, oh, yeah. Like, in our minds, it was just going to be, like, this fun, the same way we would have treated a music video or a short film where we were just like, yeah, we're going to do it, and this is how long it's going to take, and we're all going to sleep in a room, and it's going to be so great. 
So it wasn't until after the fact that we, like, <laughs> passed out for, like, a month. And, like, oh, my gosh, what were we thinking? Yeah, you didn't, well, like, you oh, didn't get your own room and you didn't get a shower. So, you know. Yeah. It, was, it was a struggle. But I will say that, you know, this, um, I think that, it, you know, we learned a lot. And it was, you know, it was, a, it was a steep learning curve. It was our first feature. And, you know, we learned a lot. But I will say that, like, we walked in, um, you know, just as prepared as we could be with just in terms of the story and what we were looking for and what we wanted from it. And I think that if you walk in to a situation like this, knowing uh, what it is you want and being open to the idea that things are going to change um, and being excited about that and then mm-hmm. surrounding yourself with people who you trust and people who you respect and, and, and you admire their creative abilities. It was just like, it was like Emily said, we had time to play and it was it, it, it was hard, but it wasn't that hard. It was like this beautiful thing yeah, where it was just a group of people who got together and all of us were on the same page and we just created this thing out of the sand. And it was, yeah, it was beautiful. It was a beautiful process. And you guys all know that not every, not every feature film set will be this wonderful. <laughs> it's a struggle to, to come to terms with that, absolutely. I mean, you, you, start, you, you had the best of the best here. You get. <laughs> well, now you know. Yeah, let you mention the word sequel. I want to mention the word sequel too because the way this film ends, without giving away any spoilers, you could very easily do a sequel, either following up on the character of Jennifer or on the house. Any thoughts about that? <laughs> We uh, we used to joke uh, that yeah we would make a, a second film where because uh, Natalie's Natalie Jones's father played Richard the real estate agent um, and he had such a good time and we loved him so much we we were gonna do a the house on Pine Street two for sale by owner and have it be the trials and tribulations of him trying to sell a haunted house <laughs> but. Uh, but no, I think that uh, I think for us, um, yeah, we we closed the door on on this story, and um, it's it's not the happiest ending, but um, but I think it's the right ending, and I think that uh, yeah, we're we're I think that we're we're done with the house on Pine Street um, and ready to explore a new story. Well, you know, you may be done with the house on Pine Street, but all the viewers out there, you know, all the moviegoers. They can mm-hmm. they can now get started with it because you are on you've got a DVD, yes. Uh, the DVD actually is coming out in January. Okay. Right now it's just, uh, digital, um, but then there'll be a physical release in January. But yeah. digitally, you're on iTunes, Vimeo, Xbox, Vudu, YouTube, and PlayStation. And Amazon Instant Video. Yeah. Oh my God! Yeah. Is there anything that you did? That any platform you're not on? Digitally, uh, there's a couple like you know like the Netflix thing. That's something that um, our distributors are going to be working on to coincide with the DVD release. Um, but yeah, we're so excited that it's it's available in so many different uh, platforms. We're really it's so weird having it just be out there now that anyone can anyone can watch it. It's really cool. Well, guys, I can't thank all of you enough for joining me today on Behind the Lens. This has been so fun, and you know. Everybody should see this film. It is a great haunting film, ghost story, a wonderful look into, you know, somebody going crazy because of being haunted. Um, And all of you did such an amazing job with it. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. much. I mean, I I want everybody to go spend money and actually watch (laughs) this film. No, seriously, this is, this is, I could see, very easily see you guys one day entering into the Blumhouse cadre, because this is, this is how you make a low budget, no budget, you know, supernatural thriller. Well done. Well done, guys. Thank you. And thank you so much for having us today. Oh, I hope you'll all come back on the show again as you're doing other projects. Anytime. Yay. Yay. (laughs) All right. Thanks, guys. I'll talk to you again soon. Have a good day. Bye-bye. Bye. And that was Aaron Keeling, Austin Keeling, Natalie Jones, Natalie Pellegrini, and Emily Goss, The House on Pine Street. How was that, Brian? 
I I always get scared when we overload the phones like that, but everybody sounded great, and they were cracking me up because I was saying the exact same thing about babies and how scary they were over the weekend. So to have that same, and I know that's going to the beginning of the interview, but to have that that <laughs> thought emulated through another person means that I am not just a, a, a narcissistic, uh, depressed person. I, I Babies are scary. Yeah, well, and I saw the look on your face, and you were laughing in agreement with Aaron and Austin, so... But yeah, everybody, I can't, you know, this is a film I, I do recommend it, it, you will be thoroughly, you will thoroughly enjoy it. It is above what would be called like a B movie. So, but going back to, we got a couple minutes left here, Brian. So I think we should talk Christmas. What do you think? Because it's never too early to get ready for Christmas. I think Christmas music should be played January 1st, 2000, whatever it is year. Until the next year. Christmas music is a year-round tradition for me. I love Christmas music. Well, you know, and something else that I love that I was very excited about is I picked up a copy of Rudolph. Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer 50th Anniversary Edition is out on DVD and Blu-ray right now. Everybody needs Rudolph in their life. Everybody. And even though I have the VHS... I really like the idea, the 50th Anniversary Collector's Edition. We have extras of Rudolph Unwrapped, Sam the Snowman Sing-Along, Holiday Pop-Up Book, and Be an Artist. So I guess we can learn how to draw Rudolph. But this weekend, we do have my favorite Christmas movie to be released this year, Bad Santa 2. It is starring Billy Bob Thornton. He is back. As the irrepressible Willie. We've got Tony Cox back as Marcus, and we have Brett Kelly back as Thurman Merman. So for all of you fans of Bad Santa that came out 13 years ago, they're all back. And now Kathy Bates is in the mix as Billy Bob Thornton's mother. And to see she and Billy Bob on screen again together since their days uh, doing primary co- the film Primary Colors, it's an absolute joy. And it's a Kathy Bates you have never seen and may never see again. Um, with tattoos, piercings, a mohawk, it's, it's, and wearing biker leather. It's interesting. But during the press day, I had a chance to talk to, pose a question to everybody. Uh, Director Mark Waters was the brave one who chose to answer it. So take a listen to what they said, had to say about the comedy of Bad Santa 2. First of all, congratulations. This is riotous, raucous, rude, crude, lewd, but over-the-top, hilarious, and filled with heart. Brilliantly done. And kudos to you, Mark, for pulling this off with this great cast. I'm curious, a film of this nature with the type of comedy, it's, it's a double-edged sword. It may work, it may offend, but as we saw with the first one, this works on a universal scale. What do you, each of you think is the appeal of the comedy in Bad Santa 2? <laughs> you can hear a pin drop. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've shown this movie to like test audiences. They all say, like, you know, Willie is OG gangster, you know, and he is just, there's something, and there's something about him that is like this immediate street cred for anybody because he says the shit we're all thinking, and he says it the way we wish we could say it, but we never do. And there's just an appeal to everyone that somebody's kind of cutting through it and giving you the, the real deal the way that he does. And, uh, and, and, and I, you know, what we always like to achieve is that kind of thing called a gasp laugh. If people first are like, what? I can't believe they said that. And then they're laughing. And that, that means it stays in the movie. If it's, if it's just a gasp, if it's just offensive, <laughs> then it doesn't really need to be there. So. And trust me, every piece of lewdness, rudeness, crudeness, and hilarity needs to be there. And of course, kudos to Mark Waters on this one because a big part of Bad Santa 2 is that thanks to writers Johnny Rosenthal and Shauna Cross, there is also scene shot at the infamous SantaCon with 3,000 Santas. And uh, I did a one-on-one with Kathy Bates, which you'll find uh, on my website and other places later this weekend. And she said it was one of the greatest experiences of her life. She got to play with a gun. She got to run in a Santa suit on ice amongst all of these people. So she got to do a little bit of her own stunt work. So it's a fun, fun movie. It is not for young children. Let me stress that. It is not for young children. 
Um, but it is my Christmas pick of the, of the Christmas movies that have come out this year. So over the Thanksgiving weekend, you know, there are some great movies out there. Go see them. Moana, Bad Santa 2, Allied, Robert Zemeckis' film with Brad Pitt and Marion Cotillard, set in 1942 to 1945. Uh, it's a spy story, and it's interesting. Double agents and everything. Uh, and then you've got Rules Don't Apply, Warren Beatty's return to the screen. So until next week, I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens. Thank mm-hmm. you.